inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Antibiotics for animals, specifically livestock. They keep cattle healthy and lower their feeding costs, but they also create antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Is there a better way? Welcome to Radio Cade. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today, I'll be talking to Horace Nall, CEO of Nutrivert, the winner of the 2020 Cade Prize for Innovation. Welcome to Radio Cade, Horace. Thank you very much, Richard. First off, congratulations. We had a virtual ceremony this year, and I wasn't able to meet you in person, but I hope you enjoyed the evening. And we want to know, did you crack open the cocktail kit that we sent all of the finalists? Yes, we did. I had my wife and son here, and we enjoyed the champagne cocktails. Thank you. We would have sent champagne, but we don't have a license to ship booze across state lines, so who knew that you could not do that? So Horace, first of all, congratulations. It was a great field this year. I mentioned this during the ceremony, but this is the first year that we actually went beyond the state of Florida for the competition. So it's great that you're currently in Atlanta, but you are using a technology, I think, developed at Auburn, correct? Auburn and outside Auburn. Bernhard Kaltenbeck, recently retired professor in the vet school, is a key inventor of this technology. Okay. So at any rate, beyond the state borders of Florida, so we're very pleased in the first year in which we expanded the prize to see teams from outside of Florida do quite well in the competition. But before we get too much further down the road talking about the company, let's talk about the technology itself so that our listeners fully understand what it is that we're talking about. I gave a little bit of description of antibiotics or livestock, but why don't you first start with what is the current state of using antibiotics for livestock? How does that work? Why is it necessary? And what is the issue? We've looked very hard, and we can't find a bigger pharmaceutical market on Earth than antibiotics for livestock. Current estimates are on the order of 130,000 tons of active pharmaceutical ingredients. So this is just an enormous use of drugs. In about 1950, it was discovered that these drugs enable livestock to grow on less feed or to grow on worse feed. And as livestock producers experimented with the technology, they quickly found that you could cut the dose right down to a minimum and still have this effect. You could cut the dose to a dose that was too low to control bacterial disease, and it still had this miraculous effect of enabling livestock producers to retarget weights for their animals on less feed. That was so attractive to them because feed is 70% of their expense. And if they can cut the expense of the feed but achieve the same output, it's just everything they want. And it's helped them to feed the whole planet in a way that they get too little credit for. So just to be clear, the antibiotics are not to treat sick cows. It's to make this whole feeding more efficient and lower the costs and therefore be able to deliver to market. Or is it also used to treat cattle that are actually sick? It's both, Richard. Often, antibiotics are given because animals are sick. And then they tend to be given at doses sufficiently high that they control the disease. That's one thing, and Nutrivert supports it. 
but a very large proportion of these drugs are given at sub-therapeutic doses to improve feed efficiency. And that's the thing that we think has to change, very honestly. That enormous volume of drug given at doses too low to kill the population of bacteria kills only the weak. And when it kills only the weak bacteria, it leaves the strong and it shifts the whole population in the direction of strong bacteria that just can't be treated with antibiotics. Then those bacteria leap from animals to humans and give us diseases that doctors just can't cure. I think probably a lot of people are familiar with that. Everyone knows a lecture from their doctors when they get an antibiotic, take the whole thing. Don't stop halfway through for precisely that reason. Otherwise, the unintended consequences, you're letting the really strong bacteria live and then they come back with a vengeance. So people in the ag business have known for a long time antibiotics had this effect But it seems like, from what I understand, they weren't exactly sure about the causation. They just knew antibiotics are good, even at low doses, lower the feeding costs. So along comes this technology that you are developing, postbiotics, as you call them. How are they the same or different from antibiotics? It's a very good question. Everybody knows what antibiotics are, Richard. And people generally know what probiotics are. They're bacteria, live bacteria that you consume one way or another. Many people know that prebiotics are things that you consume that are designed to provide food for the bacteria within you. But only in the last few years has this new class of agents called postbiotics been defined. When science grasped the importance of the microbiome, they realized that at the microbiological level, the bacteria in you, and there are trillions and trillions of them, release compounds into you. Some of them can be toxins, but that's not what we're talking about now. Some of them have co-evolved with us in a way that's mutually beneficial because we've had these trillions of bacteria in our guts for 100 million years and more. Some of the bacteria can release compounds that help us, and they're called postbiotics because they kind of come after the bacteria. You need the bacteria to release them. They're postbiotics that are good for the health of the host. So this, I presume, came from you and your co-inventors study of the microbiome to figure this out, right? Because it doesn't sound like it's necessarily intuitive. That's exactly right. We had to discover what it was about the bacteria in you that under antibiotic pressure make your gut work better. And to do that, we had to think about what antibiotics work and what kind of bacteria they work on and what they do with those bacteria. And from that, we were able to kind of figure out what was being released postbiotically from the gut microbiome. So, horse, this is put into their feed, or do you have to inject this into the livestock or anything? No, it's in the feed. In the feed. And then what does the cost look like? Is this a significant cost as a percentage of the total feed, or is it pretty nominal? No, this is not a significant proportion of the overall cost of feed or the overall cost of producing livestock. And we'll always charge a livestock producer just a third of the feed savings that they get. So overall, it will reduce expense. So they come out ahead because even though they're paying you a premium, they're reducing it by well into the profit zone to make it a worthwhile transaction. Yes. 
Okay, so this sounds pretty big if the numbers are all correct and pretty straightforward. And one thing we've learned from talking to other people in the ag sector, when we talked to the president of 4-H, we had her on the show a few months ago, and she told me in the context of 4-H that agricultural producers have always been early adopters of technology because for them, the profit margins are so thin that if you can bring them to something that is going to improve their yield or reduce crop failure or reduce watering costs or whatever it is, is they'll try it out. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, they don't use it. Particularly younger farmers are already primed to engage with new technology. So you put young 4-Hers and then you say, here's a new thing. And they'll go, let's try it right away. I'd never thought about that sector being early adopters of technology. Before we move on to what your path to market is or how you can expand this, tell us a little bit about the origin and idea. Who are the original adventures? And then who contributed? And how long has this been in development? The original inventors are Bernhard Kaltenbeck, professor of veterinary science at Auburn, and myself. I spent a career in animal pharmaceutical. I was in companies that produced products that many of your listeners may have heard of, like Frontline and Heart Guard. And I took an early retirement in 2012. For years, I had known about the problem of low-dose antibiotics for feed deficiency in livestock and the selection pressure they create for antibiotic-resistant strains of bacteria. For years, I had known that the mechanism of action, the way this worked, was described as unknown. And it seemed to me that if you were giving 130,000 tons of drug and creating antibiotic-resistant strains, it just wasn't good enough to say we don't know how it works. So with Bernhard, we kind of turned off the phones and turned off the computers and put our heads together and just thought, how can that be? How can that work? We did a lot of research, so we turned the computers on to do some of the research, but we were totally focused on this one problem. And the good news is, Richard, in the last 10 or 15 years, the scholarly community has just woken up about the microbiome. We just didn't think about the microbiome until this millennium. And suddenly, the whole world has realized that the 30 or 40 trillion bacteria in our guts are actually doing something. And Bernhard and I were able to kind of dig in to the literature of what the microbiome does and to tease out of it a single thread. That thread explains how antibiotics work at low doses for growth promotion, feed efficiency. And once we understood it, we could design analogs of the postbiotics to solve the problem. It's interesting that you say that. I've had a couple of other researchers on telling me the exact same thing, a different context about the microbiome, precisely what you said. It's like your gut, who cares? It's not quote unquote, a sexy organ. We don't really care about that. And all the things that researchers are now discovering and how it relates to other parts of the body, how it relates to health, how it relates to even mental health, a lot of things that you just wouldn't intuitively connect and it's there. That's pretty amazing. One thing I always find fascinating, Horace, is the personal journey of people in the ideas or in the invention business. So I know you're from Philadelphia, and I know that you liked animals as a kid, but then you went off to the big city. You went to Harvard, and then you got your law degree at University of Pennsylvania. So I'm not going to make any jokes about being a lawyer and working with farm animals, but if you want to make those jokes, feel free. But tell us a little bit about your path. Were you always interested in animals, but how did that all combine in your career as a lawyer, and then you worked for or pharmaceutical companies in this area. Tell us a little bit about that story. All my life, I've wanted to take care of animals and make them better, make them feel better and protect them. And 
by the same token, we all know now that animals and humans share a common ancestry, share common parasites, share common diseases. And so it was natural for me to apply myself to kind of disease. And once you apply it to humans or animals, it's all the same story. I was lucky to be able to work for the pharmaceutical company Merck. And at Merck, a guy called William Campbell invented ivermectin, for which he justly won the Nobel Prize. It has relieved more suffering from parasitic disease in humans and animals than any other drug. And so it was a great honor and privilege to be able to work on ivermectin. Then when I decided at 55 to leave big companies, I thought, okay, this is your chance to do your own thing, to chart your own course in these things you've already spent of doing. And that's how Nutrivert came to be. That's a fascinating story. Sometimes you see this, that if you're in the midst of a large organization, some of the knocks on large organizations is that large organizations find it difficult to be innovative. They find it difficult to be creative because there are all sorts of either bad incentives or lack of incentives within a large organization. But you're one of those folks that gained the experience. But as you said, once you went into a, a frame of mind where you could at least part of the time turn off the computers and just think on one problem and really try to dig deep on that is when you develop this insight, okay, oh, this is possible. But it obviously wouldn't have been possible without your previous training in a large organization and your experience in the animal pharmaceutical business. I think it's a great story. Thank you. There's a great ecosystem of innovation. And it used to be, I think, that more of it happened in big companies as a proportion than is the case now. And most of the big pharma companies realize they have to sow a lot of seeds outside the company to reap the best innovation. But there's still an incredibly important part of the ecosystem in nurturing and cultivating these technologies and then delivering them to the world at large. Right. And particularly in pharmaceuticals, where the amounts of capital that you need to properly develop and test any pharmaceutical are massive. And even the most intrepid venture capitalist is going to pause when they look at the price tag of bringing a new drug to market, whether it's for animals or humans. Hurdles are pretty significant. And so along those lines, let's talk about that. A lot of people in your position or situation decide, okay, well, I've, I've developed a great idea. It's got market potential, but developing it on my own or my own company try to do that going to be hard. So they end up licensing the technology to other companies. Have you thought about that? Where are you in terms of development? Is this something that Nutrivert wants to do itself for a while? Or what is the thinking along those lines to bring it to market? And then I guess as a subset of that question, where are you in terms of the regulatory approval, which is always huge, as you know, from your experience, where are you in that process? I'll answer the second question first. We have made up our mind that the right way to develop Nutrivert is as a registered animal pharmaceutical. We understand the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act to require us, because of the claims we're making for this product, or that we will make for this product when it's approved, to register it as an animal pharmaceutical. Now, that makes us jump over higher hurdles than is the case with other products in agriculture, some other products, but we've done this before with ivermectin, which I referenced before, and we intend to do it with Nutrivert. But it means several years until approval, and it means millions of dollars in investment before you can sell. So that's the stage we're at. We're funded now to continue the development of the product, and we're aggressively moving forward with studies, FDA studies, to move towards registration. 
The technology, in our opinion, wants to be extended worldwide, and it wants to be extended to all the major livestock species. That means that it may be attractive and it may be efficient in the economic sense for a global pharmaceutical company to project it into those areas. At every stage of our development, we'll have kind of two columns. One column, what it looks like if we develop it ourselves, and another column, if we out-license it to a big pharma or others, and we'll always do what's best for the technology, what creates the most value. So if I understand your, your thinking on this, just as there are for humans, there's a whole class of things like vitamins and minerals, right? Where I can go out and, and take some sort of supplement, and buy it from Whole Foods that has not gotten FDA approval, doesn't need FDA approval, but their claims that they can make about it are limited, right? As opposed to getting a prescription medicine in which it says that this is going to help X, Y, and Z. And that's the distinction you're making, right? Because presumably you could just say this is a supplement with limited claims claims and that would be good? Well, the way NutraVert works is the same way antibiotics work, except it's 100% antibiotic free. As I said before, antibiotics release postbiotics from the microbiome, and we're developing analogs of those postbiotics. Because that's the mechanism, Richard, just like antibiotics, which are registered drugs, we think that the ethical course is for us to register NutraVert as an FDA-approved postbiotic. Do you have any competition at the moment? Are there other companies out there doing something similar? Or what does that look like in terms of the competitive marketplace? Well, everybody's out there saying we have supplements, we have probiotics, we have prebiotics, we have enzymes, we have immunostimulants, all kinds of things are out there. In about 2017, the Pew Memorial Trusts did a review of all those classes and said the problem is none of them were consistent. If anybody has anything that works as consistently as NutraVert, we haven't found out about it and we look all the time. It's possible that people have these things and are keeping them secret, as you sometimes do with research projects. But in the published literature, we can't find anything that delivers the consistent result that NutraVert delivers. And we think it makes sense because antibiotics deliver those results consistently and we're triggering the same pathway. And obviously, that'd be a huge deal for a large ag producer, right? Is that reliability and consistency? Because you don't want a one-off benefit that you can't replicate the following year. No, they just won't use it if it doesn't work consistently. You said a moment before, the 4-H person was telling you, farmers are innovators, and it's true. But they're quick adopters, and they're quick abandoners. It's got to work, or it won't be bought. It's a tough audience, right? They'll welcome you onto the farm, so to speak, but they'll tell you to get lost if your product doesn't work. They'll just stop buying. They're very good at stopping buying. They have to be because they have to deliver food at the terrifically low prices they deliver it at, and they won't waste money on things that don't work. So, Horace, we'd like to give everyone on the show an opportunity to dispense wisdom. And so you've had a very interesting career in a, a number of different areas, and you're now right in the thick of developing new idea. What would you say to listeners who really want to pursue a career of entrepreneurship or invention and they want to do the right things? If you were giving advice to, say, your 25-year-old self, are there things that you think now like, wow, I should have done that or I shouldn't have done that, whatever the category? You're probably asked to speak to groups from time to time on lessons learned. What are some of the things that you would say? Learn the ropes and follow your passion. Lots of people, when they're asked a question, you just ask me say, follow your passion. And it might just be enough if you're inventing Facebook, I'm not sure. But in the biological sciences and in established industries, 
you have to learn, I think, how the world works and have experience and make a lot of mistakes and see other people make a mistake to have the robust understanding of the ecosystem that you're entering into. So yeah, you kind of want the passion, but we couldn't have done what we had done if we hadn't spent decades trying and failing and learning how the ecosystem works. That's a great answer. And it's a version that I've heard from other folks, a useful corrective to this idea of like, well, just follow your passion. I remember seeing a great graph. I think it was in the book, Good to Great. These three Venn diagram, one was like stuff you love to do. Another was things you're good at. And the other one was things you could actually make money at. <laughs> so it's where those three come together because they don't necessarily overlap the things that you're really, really love to do and the things that you're actually good at and that have some sort of value that someone's willing to pay you for and when they come together. And I remember Dr. Cade, the inventor Gator, who's using me as named after, he always said like, you have to be prepared. So an idea can strike you but if you don't have, as you said, sort of the fundamental training, you're not going to be able to do much with that idea because you're not really going to understand the mechanism to make it work. And so if you have the science and you have the training in the background, an idea strikes you, it did you, like, why is it the antibiotics work? How is it that nobody understands that? There's got to be a reason. And then you can actually do something with it. Fully agree. Of course, this has been a great conversation. I want to, again, thank you for taking the time to do the interview, but also more importantly, congratulations on winning the Cade Prize this year. You have a big idea and hopefully in a few years, we'll have you back on the show and Nutrivert will be a roaring success and it'll be famous and so on, which doesn't always happen, but it happens enough to where good ideas remain good ideas. Thank you, Richard. Pleasure to be on the show. Look forward to having you back. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.